You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you've brought forth. And of course, uh, I look so forward to Wednesday evenings so that we can spend the time together uh, searching your word, looking into the deeper truths found in God's word regarding our salvation. Father, the doctrines of grace, we plumb the depths of your mind to understand what you have done on our behalf in regards to our salvation. The subject of soteriology is magnificent, Father. And uh, we ask that you would join us tonight. Uh, Help apply the scriptures to us. Give us understanding. And though we're limited, uh, help us to grasp as well as we can these great truths. And as we look tonight at the first link in the chain of salvation, help us to understand it. And at the end of all of this, Father, my prayer is the same, that we will exalt you and love you and honor you that much more when we look into the doctrines of grace and see what you've done on our behalf. You are an awesome God, and we love you and thank you. We ask that you join us here now tonight, and we pray this in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. Well, Pastor Jim really stimulated me this last Sunday. And uh, his, his, his message is still uh, resonating in me. It was tremendous. But it stimulated me to read you something because what he shared uh, in his introduction about the condition of the church in Western culture I agree with him, and many men do. But I want to read to you real quickly what James Montgomery Boyce said about the visible contemporary church. I quote, Sadly, this is not the church's finest hour. We live in an age of weak theology and casual Christian conduct. Our knowledge is insufficient. Our worship is irreverent. And our lives are immoral. Even the evangelical church has succumbed to the spirit of this age. Perhaps the simplest way to say this is that evangelicalism has become worldly. What was once said of liberal churches must now be said of evangelical churches. They seek the world's wisdom, believe the world's theology, follow the world's agenda, and adopt the world's methods. The world's agenda is personal happiness. So the gospel is presented as a plain as, let me repeat that. So the gospel is presented as plain for individual fulfillment rather than as a pathway of costly discipleship. He continues and says, as surprising as it may sound, evangelicalism has become increasingly secular in an effort to make newcomers feel comfortable. Pastors teach as little theology as possible. 
Worship has become a form of popular entertainment rather than transcendent praise. New church buildings are designed to look more like office parks than houses of worship. All of these trends contribute to the secularization of what was once sacred. And finally, he says the church is also materialistic. When financial prosperity becomes significant priority, churches find themselves forced to figure out what works. Most pastors want their churches to be bigger and better. But even if they are not better, it would be better if they were bigger. Not surprisingly, their parishioners want to be healthier and wealthier too. So when we ask the question, what happened to the gospel of grace? It was lost when the minister decided to give his people what they wanted rather than what they needed, end of quote. Kootenai Community Church is an island in the sea. He didn't describe Kootenai Community Church. Kootenai Community Church is a healthy, healthy body of believers, and that's because the leadership is dedicated to what Jim was preaching last Sunday. They're dedicated to the Word of God, the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the hub of everything else that takes place in our worship service. The Scriptures should be the hub of our lives. Our lives should be governed by Scripture. So I shared that because we are diving into deep theology, and it's magnificent. It's not something we want to run from. It's something we want to run to and understand so that it will build up our love and our affection for God the Father, for God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So with that, uh, we're going to look at part two of the doctrine of foreknowledge. And just to recap so that we have a good understanding of where we're going to end up here tonight when we finish the doctrine of foreknowledge, we're going to do a little review. <clears throat> so, loved ones, I said to you last week that God's redemptive plan of salvation consists of components. It consists of elements, links, if you will, in the chain of salvation. And I said to you, the end of the chain of salvation, the doctrine which we looked at for four straight weeks, the perseverance of the saints, is determined by the beginning of salvation. So these components of the doctrines of grace stand or fall with one another. But together, they point to one central theme. And friends, that central theme is this. Salvation is all of grace because it is all of God. And Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 declares that salvation is of the Lord. Thus, the chain of salvation is all of God's work from the very beginning until the very end. Now, since the end is clearly determined by the beginning, then the beginning of salvation is where we began last week. And thus we began with foreknowledge because foreknowledge is the first link in that chain of salvation. Now I said to you that few doctrines, few doctrines spark as much controversy or provoke as much consternation as the doctrine now before us. On Sunday morning, March 22nd, 1857, young 
C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, said this regarding foreknowledge, predestination, and election. I quote, Holy Scripture teaches us that God hath from the beginning chosen us who are saved unto holiness through Jesus Christ. We are told that as many as are ordained unto eternal life believe, and that their believing is the effect of their being ordained to eternal life from before all worlds. However, this may be disputed, as it is frequently, you must first deny the authenticity and the full inspiration of the Holy Scriptures before you can legitimately and truly deny it. End of quote. Charles Spurgeon was right. You would have to deny the authenticity and the full inspiration of the Holy Scriptures when you deny the doctrine of foreknowledge. So, beloved, we are under no obligation to explain these truths. None of us are under any obligation to explain these truths. But we are obligated to state what God has revealed in His Word and to defend and vindicate these statements from misconception and objections. Now, furthermore, let us be confident that whatever God has revealed is undoubtedly true and for that matter to be believed. I've told you about my fantastic, magnificent sub, my timber framer. And he was on the project of mine this morning. Uh, In fact, all last week and this week. And he got phase one wrapped up and he came in to tell me he'll see me here next week. And I asked him, did you read that book I gave you? He said, no. I said, why not? He said, when I saw it was the five points of Calvinism and I saw the acronym TULIP, he said, I wanted nothing to do with it again. And I said, why? He says, I think it's an absolutely horrific interpretation of scriptures. He's Arminian. I've said to you that our Arminian brothers are are sadly mistaken theologically. I can't force the scripture. Let me rephrase that. I can't force him to accept the interpretation of scripture regarding the doctrines of grace. But what I can do is is lift him up in prayer and, and always challenge him back to the word of God. I did that today, hoping that the Holy Spirit will be able to come in and teach him the truths found in God's word regarding soteriology, because that's what it is, the study of salvation. But we must defend what God writes. But I think we got to defend it in a loving, gentle manner and not go beating people up over the head with it. I have never won a debate when I was with somebody. So, well, let me keep saying this now. Unfortunately, erroneous views are held even by many of God's children. My blessed friend and timber framer. <laughs> 
So let me share with you the popular view that prevails and which is taught by a great majority of pulpits is this. Man has a free will and that salvation comes to the sinner through his will cooperating with the Holy Spirit. That is the prevailing view with most people today. My friend is one of them. And yet scripture emphatically says in Romans chapter 9 verse 16, it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now, which shall we believe? Are we going to believe what God tells us? or Are we going to believe what men tell us? Well, I know all of us in this room tonight are going to believe in what the word of God tells us. And the word of God expressly declares there is no one who seeks after God. No, not one. Romans 3.11. And furthermore, did the Lord Jesus Christ not say to the men of his days, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life? Indeed he did. John 5.40. But someone could reply and say, yeah, but some did come to him. Some did receive him. You are absolutely right. That is true. And who were they? Well, John tells us. John chapter 1, verse 12 through 13 tells us this. But as many as received him, Jesus Christ, to them... He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name who were not born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So beloved, how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile this? Well, let me stir your thinking from a biblical perspective. In and of himself, the natural man, the unregenerate, has the power to reject Christ. Now, in and of himself, that man does not have the power to receive Christ. He can reject Christ, He can't receive him. Why? Because the unregenerate, the natural man, has a mind that is enmity against God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Paul says this, The carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. You see, the natural man, the unregenerate, he has a heart that hates God. And left to himself, the natural man would never come to Christ. Therefore, he has to be made willing. And that's where the first link in the chain of salvation comes in. Foreknowledge. Now, last week, I began our study of foreknowledge by proposing this rhetorical question. What is foreknowledge? 
Great big giant word, foreknowledge. What does it mean when Scripture says of God that he foreknew the elect? And I told you that the most common answer from the majority of Christendom is the following. God's foreknowledge consists of his omniscient ability to look down through the halls of time to see which individuals would believe and trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for salvation. And these God redeems. Friends, I can't tell you how many Christians I have met who believe this very thing. My dear friends, one of them. Now, follow with this. They think that they came to faith because God in his omniscience looked down the halls of time to see what a person would do. And when God looks down and sees that they're going to believe in Jesus Christ, God's going to save them. Now, I heard something that really made sense to me that I never heard before, and I'm going to share it with you. Think about what an insult it is to God to think that he needs to look down the quarter of time to see what's going to happen. Think about that. Think about what an insult it is to our Father in heaven that he needs to look down in the halls of time to see what's going to take place as if he doesn't know. So he's got to look to see and then respond. What an insulting travesty to think that God does not know until he observes it. What an insult to his omniscience, his all-knowing, his all-knowing the beginning to the end. Beloved, God knows it because he ordains it. Now this wonderful word, foreknowledge, comes from the Greek word prognosko, which literally means to know beforehand or to determine beforehand. I'm going to stop real quick because a thought just, just hit me. Do any of you know who Steve Lawson is? You know Steve Lawson? Anybody? Steve Lawson, very godly man. He belongs to the uh, Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Um, very reformed. He is a pastor, uh, I'll say 65 years old, maybe 70. Um, a tremendous Bible expositor. Very respected man. He made a comment that when men think that God has to do what, what men think he has to do, look down the halls of time, you know what he said that was? He used the word heresy. He says that's heretical. That's how much he believes God is insulted that man would ever think God has to look to observe to see what's going to happen and then react. I've thought about that since I heard him. By the way, I heard it last week. That's troubling. 
troubling to think that our great and awesome God has to be subject to man. That can't be the case. So let's dissect this word. I'll keep moving here. Foreknowledge comes from the Greek word prognosko, which literally means to know beforehand or to determine beforehand. Now, I told you that the Greek word prognoso is made up of two words. The prefix pro, which means before, and the root word genosko, which means to know. Now, combining the two, we get to know before. Now, the key to this is before. Now, with the understanding that foreknowledge means to know beforehand, let us now turn to the scripture to see how foreknowledge is used as the first link in the chain of salvation. I know we looked at him last week. We're going to take a peek at him one more time. Uh, Amos chapter 3, verse 2, please. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Everybody there? Verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. The word known. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Romans 8, 29. I can't read 29 without starting in 28. It's so such a beautiful text. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And Paul continues on. Moreover, whom He predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. The key to what we're looking at is 29. For whom he foreknew. Turn over to Romans chapter 11, verse 2. Verse 1, Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people, speaking of Israel? And Paul says, certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not casted away, look what he says, his people whom he what? Foreknew. Prognosco. We looked at this passage at great length a couple weeks ago, but let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because Peter touched on it also. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2 is what we're looking at, but I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. 
First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What we have here, friends, in every single one of these that we have looked at, what we have here is the unbroken pattern of God's sovereign redemption, beginning with his eternal foreknowledge of the believer's salvation. So suffice it to say that redemption begins with God's foreknowledge. That's the first link in the chain of salvation. God's foreknowledge. To put it another way, the chain of salvation begins with God's sovereign foreknowledge. In other words, all believers are, first of all, people whom God foreknew. People whom God foreknew to salvation. Now that brings us to foreknowledge's twin brother. Foreknowledge has a twin brother, and it's predestination. Now the word predestination, it comes from the Greek word perizo or perizio. Not sure exactly how to pronounce it, which literally means to predetermine or to determine beforehand, to mark out beforehand, to foreordained. So we have foreknowledge, prognosco, and predestination, parisio, and it comes from the same prefix again, pro. Remember, pro means before. So allow me to illustrate once again from Scripture the use of these words. If you don't mind, turn with me, please, back to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And I'm going to start in 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is Peter preaching. And Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Friends, it says here that Christ was being delivered by the determined purpose, the perusio, perusio, and foreknowledge, the prognosco of God, and that you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put him to death. We have another one just similar 
Turn over to chapter 4, verse 27, please, of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Peter continues. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom God anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do what God's hand and God's purpose determined. Parisio, before to be done. Now friends, is Peter simply telling his listeners that God looked down through the portals of time to see what men were going to do with his beloved son? Is Peter simply telling his listeners that God knew from eternity past that the Lord Jesus Christ would be crucified? Absolutely not. What would be the point of saying all of that? What Peter is saying is that Christ was crucified and died on the cross because God predetermined it. Peter is saying that God planned it. He's saying it was God's purpose. He's saying it was a predetermined purpose to crucify Christ. Beloved, we cannot escape this. Though the actual word foreknowledge is not used in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. The same idea is present, though. Look with me again, would you? One more time at Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Peter proclaimed, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, God, he's speaking of God, whom God anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do what God's hand and what God purposed determined. Proresio, before to be done. Friends, these men were carrying out God's purpose. These men we're carrying out the predetermined decision of God to sacrifice His Son. They were doing what God's hand and God's purpose determined before to be done. Before they did their work, it was predetermined. They were just carrying out God's plan. You see, the plain teaching here is that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was planned by God. And it was planned by God before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ's death was no accident. 
Wicked men did not take Christ without the Father preordaining it to happen. Peter made it so clear it was the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Nothing else. Loved ones, God did not look down the halls of time to see what Christ would do and then respond. That did not happen. And may I say, it didn't happen with you either. He determined it. God predetermined it in eternity past. He predetermined it before the foundation of the world. Now that brings us to our third and final point regarding foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge equates with forelove. So in addition, foreknowledge carries the idea of a forelove. In other words, God has predetermined to set his divine love on those whom he plans to save, the elect, the born-again believers, the regenerated. And it's because to know often carries the idea of special intimacy and is frequently used of a love relationship. You don't have to turn back there, but the first passage we looked at, Amos chapter 3, verse 2, where the Lord says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. That's an example of this for love. You only have I known. It's an intentional, predetermined love relationship with specific people, the elect. Now, to know is also used in Scripture, friends, in a negative sense. Very familiar passage to all of us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23 Jesus used it as a warning. He said this, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What was Jesus saying here? Was he saying that he didn't know who these people were? No. No. Jesus was saying that he didn't know them as one of his. That he didn't know them as one of his elect. He knew their names. He knew what they were all about. He didn't know them as one of his chosen. that he had no intimate relationship with them as their Lord and Savior. Let's go there and look at it. Let's take a minute and just go over to Matthew chapter 7, would you please? This is our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, wrapping it up. 
And he's talking about the people who make a false profession. And it's following right behind his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount of beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So in verse 21, let's pick it up. Our Lord said this, chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Friends, Jesus was telling these people that he never knew them as one of his. They were not one of his believers. They were not one of his born again. They were not one of his regenerate. They were not one of his elect. No, Jesus was saying he didn't know them as one of his. Now, Paul said of the true believer, the elect, the following. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. Now, let's look at another example of this knowing. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. Verse 5. We've looked at this before, but we're going to look at it again. Jeremiah chapter 1, please. Verse 5. I want you to see this intimate knowledge of knowing someone and knowing someone in a loving way. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. I thought that I put it on one of our... uh, passages in one of my notes. Don't I have it under one of my note headings? I think I do. At the top of this one? Oh, it's on this one. I don't have a copy of it. So, okay. Yeah, there it is. Gosh. Good eyes, babe. The top of your notes. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born... I sanctified you, meaning he set him apart. He set him apart because he knew him as one of his, and he had a specific task for Jeremiah. He set him aside. He sanctified him. And then look what it says. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Now notice several things in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Notice the phrase, I knew you. Friends, in the Septuagint, The Greek Old Testament, the word new comes from the Greek word epistemi. Epistemi, which literally means to know. To know. Notice when God knew Jeremiah. Look what it says. Before what? Before I formed you in the womb. God knew Jeremiah before he ever was born. He knew Jeremiah 
just like he knew all of us before the foundation of the world. And before the foundation of the world, God, in a loving way, ordained Jeremiah to be one of his elect and then purposed him to be a prophet to the nation. He knew him, friends, before he was ever created. Now notice the next phrase, how Scripture emphasizes when God knew Jeremiah. Before you were born, I sanctified you. Meaning before Jeremiah was born, God set him aside. He set him apart. Now the last phrase, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. This word ordained, it comes from the Greek word horizo. It's a cinnamon, cinnamon, synonym. <laughs> That's terrible. It is a synonym of prognosco. It isn't cinnamon. <laughs> oh, gosh. Honey, your husband, boy. This word ordained comes from the Greek word horizo or horizo, and it's a synonym of prognosco. Do you understand what Scripture is teaching here? It's teaching that God ordained Jeremiah before the foundation of the world to be a prophet to the nations. He ordained him. He predetermined it. He foreknew it to take place. Loved ones, God ordains all who are His. All of us sitting here tonight, God ordained us before the foundation of the world. He foreknew, predestined, ordained us to be one of His children. I, I just love the adoption, the picture of adoption. He adopted us to be heirs, joint heirs with Christ. You know, when you adopt, we, I, I talked about um, Jason Cates. He and Angie are adopting that cute little, beautiful little girl, that little blonde girl, Zoe. They're bringing that little girl into their family and making her theirs. God did that with us. Just like he ordained Jeremiah, he ordains all who are his, that's you and me. And he begins that ordination by the foreordination and foreknowledge of himself. Isn't that beautiful? He foreordains us. Diane.
The Old Testament and New Testament speaks about it. It's replete. what we believe that's what he believes but he can't tell me why he cannot support it and Diane any anybody I've ever met who's been Arminian can't do it either I think I told everybody that 26 years ago, when I heard this for the first time, I said, uh-uh, uh-uh. And I kept hearing it, and I kept reading it, and everywhere I turned, and I go, hmm. And I was troubled because I had Courtney, Callie, and Cameron. And... I knew that I could not save them. I knew that the only way that they were going to come to salvation is if God calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I, I didn't know if God was going to do that. And so that's why I was not wanting to embrace God's word. It might be. But, but that battle I gave up. I, I, I mean, I was resisting scripture. I was not going to call God and his word a liar. Now, now, they won't say that, but they're implying it. So when I think about what I heard Steve Lawson say last week in a DVD, and I just went, whoa, he's troubled over that thought. I understand that. How can we miss it? It's impossible, isn't it? That's why I said over and over, how can we escape this? We can't. God begins the ordination of his elect by his foreordination and foreknowledge. Thus, the first link in the chain of salvation is God's sovereign foreknowledge. It's the first link. You see, the reason the perseverance of the saints is absolute, the the reason the perseverance of the saints is assured The reason the perseverance of the saints is for certain is because God in eternity past foreordained it to be so. That's why the prophet Malachi said of God, for I am the Lord, I do not change. And with absolute assurance, friends, with absolute assurance, the Apostle Paul said this, for the gifts and the calling of God 
are irrevocable. That should solidify it all by itself. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty nine. And of course, Peter proclaimed with confidence, brothers and sisters, confidence. This, and you guys hear me say this all the time. It's in my prayers all the time. First Peter 2, 9, that you are a chosen generation. Notice the word chosen. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who called who? He called you. He called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what do we do with Jeremiah 1.5? We embrace it. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Friends, the first link, the first link in the unbroken, notice the word I'm using, unbroken chain of salvation is nothing other than God's sovereign foreknowledge. The next time we're together, we're going to look at predestination. We, We just took a peek at it tonight. We're going to look at predestination the next time, the second leak. When we're done with predestination, I believe it'll be two weeks, we will go to the doctrine of election. We'll have two weeks there. And then we might sneak around a little bit and maybe take a peek at sanctification, a big word. I'm, I'm, I'm really praying about do I do justification do I, do I take the doctrines of grace and then weave in the other doctrines that are tied to it? I say yes. But when we're done, we will look at why God has to be solely, fully, and wholly responsible for our salvation. And you know why? Because we're totally depraved. We're going to look at that. We've got to understand what's wrong with us that God has to do the whole thing. People don't like the word total depravity. It, 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 it has a stigma. So we might call it the inability of man. Human inability. But tonight... We're going to use the word foreknowledge. And we looked at its twin brother, predestination. And we got a little glimpse here of election, being chosen. But in closing, I want to go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. I'm going to remind you, it says this, him, speaking of Christ, being delivered, 
by the determined purpose, the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now the phrase determined purpose are the translation of a perfect participle and a noun. The word determined comes from the Greek word horizo, which literally means to mark out definitely and determine. To determine or appoint. Now, horizo or horizo is synonymous with perusio, meaning the word determined could have been rendered predestined. Let me say that again. So I want to just make sure it's, you guys get that. The word determined, it comes from a Greek word, horizo, horizo. Again, uh, on my Greek pronunciations, I'm not the greatest. But it literally means to mark out definitely and determine, to determine or appoint. Now, horizo is synonymous with parisio, meaning that the word determined could have been rendered predestined. Predestined. Now the word purpose. We have determined purpose. The word purpose. It comes from the Greek word bole, which literally means to will by the result of determining. (coughs) Excuse me. To will by the result of determining. Now the words purpose, bole, and foreknowledge, prognosco, are in a construction where the two nouns are in the same case and connected by the word and. Kai. The first noun, purpose, bole, is preceded by a perfect participle, determined, herezo. The second noun, foreknowledge, prognosco, is without a perfect participle. Now, the rule for interpretation states, I quote, that in this construction... The second noun, foreknowledge, refers to the same thing which the first noun does and is further a description of it. Now that comes from word studies in the Greek New Testament by Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar. That means this. That means that Purpose, bole, and foreknowledge refer to the same thing. They're identical. And that is the act of God selecting Christ out of the persons of the triune Godhead to be the Lamb slain as a sacrifice for sin. I repeat that. What all this means is the act of God selecting Christ out of the persons of the triune Godhead, the Trinity, to be the lamb slain as a sacrifice for sin. 
It's a selection of God. He selected and determined his son to be the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Thus, beloved, foreknowledge, prognosco, means more than previous knowledge because it's attached to purpose. Bole. It means a specific selection and choosing. Therefore, we could truly and accurately translate foreknowledge to foreordination. Now, that's exactly what the Greek translators did. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. First Peter chapter 1, verse 20. I cannot tell you why the translators translated it foreordained, but it's an accurate translation. It's correct. Why elsewhere did they use foreknowledge? Foreknew? I can't answer. What I can tell you is this. Foreknowledge truly means... For ordination. And the translators got it dead on in verse 20 of 1 Peter. Look with me. Speaking of Christ, Jesus indeed was foreordained. Look when. What's your say? What's it say? Before the foundation of the world. Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Fast forward it to you and I here tonight. Somewhere, sometime in real time, you were called. You were foreordained just like the Savior before the foundation of the world and predestined to be God's elect. And in real time, to each one of us here tonight, it was different, we were called. That's when we were elected. We were chosen. Chosen before the foundation of the world, chosen in real time, called in real time, and one day glorified. The preservation of the saints, the perseverance of the saints is guaranteed because of the first link of salvation with God's foreknowledge. Isn't that beautiful? And by the way, all of what we talked about tonight All that we have talked about to date in the doctrines of grace is all because of God's grace. Dave, can you play that beautiful chorus for us? And I'll come back up and close us in prayer. Listen carefully to this song once again. And listen to the 
words and the theology.
like that and I hear special hymns it just makes me long it just makes me long to go home and embrace Christ physically let's bow for a word of prayer and I'll get you home Heavenly Father I stand before you now and I'm really without words when everything sinks in and you have an understanding of what you've done on our behalf I don't know any other way but to exalt your great name and to honor you and to worship you and adore you and praise you. Father, it is all by your grace. And that chorus makes that so clear. It's by your grace we come. It's by your grace that we stand. Father, thank you so much for so loving your elect family that you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We thank you, we love you, and we worship you. And we pray these things in the magnificent name of your most precious and dearest Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.